grew up in a large family. There was 12 of us. There was eight boys and four girls. And uh, my brother Charles, who's up on the wall. Hattie Dawson points to the wall behind her at the Thiokol Memorial Museum, where a picture of Charles hangs, along with the portraits of the other victims of the explosion. Because he was the big one of the family, you know, and nobody could mess with us because he was our defender. And I used to tease some of my little boyfriends in school. I see if my brother Charles would have been here, he'd have beat y'all up for me. You know, and I always said, if I could have Charles around it, I wouldn't have to worry about anything because he would, you couldn't mess with his sisters now. Somebody bothered you, you went and got Charles. He went to the job court because of dropping out of high school and he came back home and he got a job at Thicol in January of 71. He was employed seven days before the explosion happened. That Wednesday morning, Charles and several other relatives went to work at Thiokol just as Hattie was finishing up her graveyard shift on the morning of February 3rd. And I sit down on the side of the bed to take off my shoes. That's when she felt the house shake. And we was wondering, what in the world going on? So a few minutes after that, it flashed, well, I don't know exactly how many, but it flashed across the TV for all personnel from the hospital to come back to work that there had been an explosion. So I jumped up and I ran down to the my grandmother's house that lives not too far, four houses down. And I told her, I said, I'll drive you to the hospital. And I just was walking up to the slab where the rescue squad would pull up at, and there were bodies laying there covered up. And every time we would try to find out, you know, where's Charles, where's Charles, where's Charles? But we still couldn't find where Charles was at. And my dad, he was out there. And about 6 o'clock that evening, he came and he'd found him. Hattie's uncle, who was working with Charles that day, told them what had happened. That Charles was already outside of M-132 when the building exploded. But when he found out that his sister-in-law was still inside, he turned around. And ran back towards the building. And a beam fell on him. They said when he found him, the beam was still laying across him. And he was burnt without recognition. He was a protector. Until the very end. I used to sit on my mom's porch. And I just look out across the woods and I say, Charles, coming home. Because I didn't, I didn't get a chance to see his body. And I say, he's coming home. I say, he's just somewhere and he don't remember who, where he belongs or who he have. I said, but he's going to come home one day. He's going to come back. Ten years to the time of the explosion. And that was when I really started accepting that he was not coming back. This is Tripwire. So Thicol had a lot of effect on a lot of people's, a lot of our lives. So, That's Joyce Banks-Bow. She struggles a bit when trying to encapsulate the devastation of the Thiokol explosion. To me, that was 29 people, 30 people is not a lot of people to a lot, to some of the people, but that was a lot of people to get killed to us. 
we knew, you know, that they're children. We grew up together, raised together. I can look up there and call some of the names and tell you some of the people that lived in the neighborhood right there where I lived at. So it was just hard. In Woodbine, every black family was connected in some way. If you didn't have a relative who passed, you knew someone who did. I knew Miss Miss Bertha Brumswick, Celeste's mama. I knew Mr. Howard Ellis. Kenneth knew mama, his wife lived, she's still living. In the days after the explosion, plant production ceased. Federal agencies came to the small town to investigate. At the time, no one knew yet what exactly had caused the major blast. Jimmy Carter, then Georgia's governor, visited the site. Thiokol's plant manager told him, this place was not supposed to explode. For a while, help was pouring in. A new daycare was constructed with Thiokol contributing about 10000 to the project. Matching funds from the Department of Family and Children's Services came as well. The reason that they did this was because the children had been orphaned and, and the parents had to heal and they had to get ready to go back to work. The state of Georgia formed the Woodbine Recovery Task Force. A group of representatives from different government agencies went down to Woodbine to help the families sort out all the legal ramifications of a workplace death. Families packed into the Woodbine Elementary School Gymnasium, where the task force was set up. In that crowded hall, the weight of tragedy hung in the air. And occasionally, you could hear a muffled sob, said one media report. In the midst of their grief, these family members were told how much their loved one's life was worth. The life of their mother, father, son, daughter, aunt, uncle, and so on. Some eventually wanted to sue Thiokol for more, but they couldn't. The workers' compensation law in Georgia and in other states prevented that. If you get injured on the job, you get paid regardless of who's at fault. And with the insurance, you basically forfeited your right to sue. The workers' compensation insurance measured out about 15000 for each death. Some got more depending on how much they made and contributed to the program while they were alive and working. Those who were disabled and had dependents got a weekly stipend of about $43, not enough to cover a week's worth of pay. Some would spend most of the insurance money on their recovery or childcare, and then they were left to figure it out on their own. Well, see, things were different because Richard Spells, he was in my class. Bernard Ellis was in my class. Rufus Banks was in my class. All of them, they lost their parents, right? My mother was injured, but Richard was the only son. He had three sisters, but he was the only son. And he always dressed real neat like his mom did, you know. His mom, she could wear a linen dress, ride in a car, and get out the car with no wrinkles. Like, is that a miracle or something? But anyway, he was always pressed down, too. But when he came back after her funeral, he was just different. You could see it in his eyes that he, he I, I've never, I mean, it's like looking at a person's soul. I mean, just being absent. And he was different after then. 
you know, men were going off to Vietnam with, you know, the draft and everything. But nobody would ever thought that the mother was gone. That one person that's with you from the beginning that love you before, you know, they even know your name or have named you, this person is absent and gone. Remembering Mama, Mrs. Ethel May Lawrence Banks. Out of the 29 victims, 21 were women, many of them mothers. Sandra Ross was pregnant when the fire started at her station. Betty Birch had a baby at home. She was the one Hattie's brother Charles was trying to save. Their deaths ruptured their families, and the trauma rippled throughout the community. No amount of compensation or restitution could quantify what was lost. Ethel Banks, whom Joyce was just introducing, was the guiding hand for her four children. She raised Joyce and her three younger siblings, teaching them the simple but profound lessons a parent teaches their child when they're growing up. And when they got older, she persisted, urging her children to get an education and to better themselves so they didn't have to see factory work as the only opportunity. When she died making the trip flares at Thiokol, that guiding hand was gone. To understand Ethel's death, Joyce tells us about her mother's life. Mama was a hard worker. I remember when she taught school in Tarboro, sometimes she would bring students home for a weekend because they lived out so far, and she was always trying to help them, always trying to do things for them. I was glad when she would bring the students home because they were always students that were older than me, and I was the oldest of the children. So when she brought children home, well, you know, they took care of us. I enjoyed them combing my hair because they weren't as hard on the hair. Mama didn't take as much time <laughs> with it. So we had many house guests throughout the years of our lives. Later years, I can remember her working at Horn's Restaurant, and it was a restaurant right down the street from where we lived, so she could walk to work there. She would let me come to work and wash the dishes. And she would pay me, and I wasn't on the payroll because I wasn't old enough to be. I was 12, I think. But she would um, pay me for coming to work. Then she worked and made clothes for different other ones, children in the community and that type of thing. She was a born seamstress, and my mother could make anything from whatever. She didn't need a pattern to make. And so many people in the community she sold for. Joyce's mother tried to instill the same work ethic and curiosity in her children. Even though Ethel worked out of necessity and to care for her children, she showed them that that was the beauty in learning new things. There's more than one job, more than one thing you can learn, even if it was just taken up as a hobby. Her mother took them to the local church in Woodbine, too, and there she taught them what Joyce calls moral values, right from wrong and how to be a good person how to care for people, how to do right by people, just even if the person didn't do right by you. Those things are things that she taught when we were little children, how to um, be a friendly person, play with children and be friendly and loving and just learn how to help somebody any way that you could because that was what she was doing. So we grew into that. Until today, that still sticks with me. 
when I graduated from high school, my mother wanted me to go to college. <laughs> I started out with her dream, but I didn't finish it because I went to school at Grady College in Atlanta, but I didn't stay there. The finances were hard. I didn't stay. I came back home. Well, Mama wasn't satisfied with that, so I moved to Brunswick, Georgia, and then I went to to the college in Brunswick. She still had three children at home, so she was working on them. Brunswick is about 30 miles north of Woodbine, so Joyce didn't see her mother very often. But by then, Ethel was working at Thiokol. I knew she liked it. I knew there were some changes. And you know you can tell about the changes in your family when you see changes. Uh, the income had changed. There was more money coming in. As her working at Thicol and finances changing, I gave her an opportunity. And she really was pushing her children in to do better with their lives. So I was glad about her working at Thicol. The explosion took place. That was a day of change in our lives. A day of horror. That Tuesday was my birthday. The Wednesday, I call exploded. I was working part time at. Um, Kentucky Fried Chicken on Highway 17. So I was in that building when the explosion happened. We could hear the explosion in Brunswick, Georgia. We heard this loud, loud blast. And when they turned the TV on, there was this, this, the newscast about um, an explosion in Woodbine. And I'm saying, no, can't be no explosion with Mama's there. So I started trying to get information. I didn't get any information really until late in the afternoon. So I just got my baby and went home. I knew trouble was there, so I went home. My grandfather and Daddy came home. My grandfather came. And that's when he somehow he had been out there and he told us children about the explosion and that mama was one of the ones killed. In those first few weeks after the blast, when the government aid was rushing in, President Richard Nixon sent the city of Woodbine a telegram of his condolences. The tragic loss of life that resulted from the explosion at the munitions plant at Woodbine profoundly touched the hearts of all Americans. On their behalf, I want to extend my deepest sympathy to the families struck by this disaster. The state was making efforts to increase job training and opportunities around the Woodbine area as well. But after the sympathies and national headlines died down, 
the people were left to deal with the lasting trauma. Emma Liu says that on March 5th, about a month after the explosion, Thaikol sent employees a come-back-to-work letter. If they didn't come back, they were going to be terminated. And I guess they were going to hire some more people. The letter stated if they didn't return to work in a week, they would lose their jobs. A few days later, the last victim of the explosion passed. Bertha Mae Hills, Teresa's best friend whom we talked about in the last episode, died in a burn hospital in South Carolina. I've been banking, I was working over in uh, 133. So while their friends, family, and neighbors still recovered from their injuries, most people, like Emma Lou, went back to Thiokol. Nowhere else for me to go, because I definitely was going back to sleep at. Thiokol was still one of the better options in a scarce job landscape, and they had to earn a livelihood somehow. This time, they started to work on a different part of the plant. So we started doing the 81 millimeter, so. 81 millimeters were another type of war munition that Thiokol was already producing. They were mortar rounds that also contained explosive chemicals. That building was right next to M132, or what was left of it. The trip flares were no longer being manufactured, but the mangled mass of wire and concrete languished there like a skeleton in a deserted war zone. Trees surrounding the site were still scorched coal black. And afterwards, every time you went by there, you just, you just had to cry because you knew what had happened. That's Helen Lang. She worked as Thiokol's secretary of personnel. We had to go through all the personnel records. And the young lady that was working in personnel at that time, she had a nervous breakdown. She couldn't come back. She never came back to work. Three weeks after the blast, Thiokol received the smoking gun a memo from the U.S. Army telling them that the materials used in the trip flares were misclassified. The chemicals were inadequately labeled as a C2 flammable hazard, and they had to be reclassified back to a C7 explosive. That would have changed the way the materials had been handled and stored. The Army conducted those tests months before the explosion happened. But that notice didn't reach the plant. Well, a note was found in some government employees' desk drawer that, uh, that said that they were supposed to notify us, but they didn't. Lost in the Army's bureaucratic circles, said a judge's report years later. The Army's negligence formed the basis of the lawsuits against the U.S. government in the years to come. That court battle would endure for more than a decade and a half. And before it was over, Thiokol's name would be attached to another major disaster. It happened just over one minute into flight. A structural failure in the Challenger space shuttle that caused it to explode mid-flight, killing the entire seven-member crew. From mission control, silence. By then, the Thiokol explosion had long faded from the public's memory. But the thing was, as the years went on, when I did um, go to D.C. and everything, and on February the 3rd, if my mom was at my house, she would cry. One day, 
I was getting ready to go to Homeland Security, and I was I had been upstairs, and I I was getting ready to walk downstairs, and I heard her say, "Oh God, I hurt so bad." I was like, "Oh, wait a minute, that's my mom." I went back to the to the bedroom on the end, and I pushed the door. I said, "What? What? You hurting? You know, you got to go to the doctor or something." And she said, "No." She said, "Oh." My co-workers, all of them got killed. Nobody cares about them. Nobody cares. And I said, when I retire, I'm going to take care of that. The whole world kind of changed for me after that. We didn't know how to accept death, first of all. My sister, Ida, had a mental breakdown and she was in and out of hospitals for years so today we don't know where she is we haven't seen her since 1983 mama being who she was to her children the hand that she had on her children was not there anymore to help them the children who lost their mothers to Thiokol have grown up now, and Joyce sees them from time to time. They missed out, they feel like they missed out on so much because they lost their mother. Things that happened to him that his, his mother been living would not happen to him. We don't know that, but that's how he feels. So there, there is so much there. You know, so much, so much hurt, so much pain. If we pull together and learn how to uh, love each other and help each other in any way we can to get past some of that pain, you don't, it don't ever go away, but you learn how to get past that. Podcast is a production of the Savannah Morning News. Executive producers are Anne and Pat Longstreth, Zach Dennis, and me, Nancy Wan. Music for the show was written and performed by Andrew Sovine. Learn more about his work at andrewsovine.com. Special thanks goes to Janie Everett and the Thiokol Memorial Project. Learn more about the project at thiokolmemorial.org.